We the members of the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult, as far as we know it. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson. I am here with our old buddy, Luke. Did we name you, Luke? We did. You're the Discordian master. What are you? <laughs> Producia Discordia. Pro- ah, yes. Producia, Producia Discordia. <laughs> how uh, how pretentious. Yes, that that is your title. John, what did you get me into? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Uh, that uh, we are joined by a couple of uh, independent Catholic priests. Uh, Shabon Houston has an MA from Harvard Divinity and did her doctoral work with none other than Nicholas Goodrick Clark, uh, who, who uh, was research we've drawn on for our show. And that was at Exeter, and she graduated from the Graduate Theological Foundation. Her books include Priests, Gnostics, and Magicians, as well as Gnostic Healing. Siobhan is uh, interested, I found this very interesting, Jewish by birth, uh, but is now an ordained independent Catholic priest. Siobhan, welcome. Thank you. And uh, John Mabry, is that right, John? That's right. Yeah, Fantastic. Is uh, also uh, an ordained independent Catholic priest. Uh, he was ordained in 1991 by the Free Catholic Communion and raised to the Episcopate in 2007. I'm just saying words now. I don't know what any of this means. In 2012, I know what it means to resign. In 2012, he resigned uh, and became pastor for the United Church of Christ. Okay, I, I know what that means. He teaches uh, comparative theology at, at the Chaplaincy Institute in, in Berkeley, California, and is the founder, this is very cool, of the Apocry- Apocryphile Press and the author of 35 books. And he's also a prog rock singer. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> Two very Great accomplished people. Uh, we're very excited to have you both here uh, with all of your many accomplishments uh, to talk about a subject that uh, I know very, very little about. Uh, but uh, John promises me that it touches in on all sorts of occult themes, and I believe him because <laughs> of the conversation we've had leading up to this. So you guys are independent Catholics. What does that mean? So uh, independent Catholics are uh, people who uh, self-identify as Catholic but are not Roman Catholics. Um and are not part of the any of the um, historical uh, Orthodox bodies, and are are not are not Anglican either, um, uh, and yet their spirituality is Catholic and their theology is Catholic or at least very influenced by Catholicism, um, and uh, usually they belong to uh, one of uh, many many many. Uh, small denominations um, that uh, broke away from Rome at one point or another. I would just like to add that I was ordained in a metaphysical independent Catholic or independent sacramental church, which was quite different because there were no doctrinal tests. You didn't have to uh, ascribe to any doctrine about the divinity of Jesus or the incarnation, etc. So it was a, a quite a different environment. Yeah, metaphysical speaks to me of something that feels more occulty, right? In the in the church. Yes, world. it was. Yeah. Yes, it was. And and independent Catholics tend to come in in one of two flavors: either uh, you know, kind of outrageously conservative. 
um, you know, like like Mel Gibson's dad conservative. Uh, <laughs> um, or, uh, you know, incredibly progressive. Um, there are, you know, I think, you know, half of the independent Catholics I know are, are, are gay or lesbian. So it's, um, uh, it's, and there's, and there's very little middle ground there. It's a big uh, tent. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, independent Catholics, a, a lot of them are very, um, focused on, apostolic succession and preserving and being able to document the valid succession because it's the, it's the, uh, it's the claim to authenticity. Um, but, um, uh, yet there are, you know, some other like denominations in independent Catholicism, um, that, uh, where the, the, the ordination is spiritual. So it's something that happens on the etheric plane. So let me start with a, I guess, a basic question to me: Why, why Catholics? So we're talking about you could be Anglican, you could be so many things. Why hang with this Catholic? What is it that makes you Catholic, even though you've broken with the Roman Catholic Church? I would just like to mention that there are independent Anglican churches. There are independent Eastern Orthodox churches. So it's not just limited to the Catholic tradition. Yeah, we often talk about um, uh, the independent sacramental movement as kind of a uh, an umbrella term, and we can thank Bishop uh, John Plummer for that. Um, and uh, and it, it does, you know, it, those three flavors, you know, Catholic, uh, Anglican, and Orthodox, are, are well represented within that movement. So, but why? <laughs> I, I guess for me, from my perspective, uh, John and Siobhan, uh, you know, we we are. I have in my research, I've been surrounded by people who have completely broken with the Catholic Church to go in very different directions, become spiritualist mediums or theosophists or you name it. Uh, why hang? What what is it? What is Catholicism offering that you want to maintain? From my perspective, uh, being Jewish and uh, being a I guess, disciple of who I would call Mar Yeshua or Jesus. Um, I would say I, it's primarily the ceremony, which is very similar to ceremonial magic. And I have a long background in ceremonial magic. The way the, Catholic, the independent Catholic Church developed was from people who uh, in in the 18th century in, Netherlands, in the Netherlands, broke uh, from the Roman Catholic Church and started their own independent church. And then that grew into a larger movement after Vatican I, which is, was in the mid-1800s, because there were many Catholics at the time who didn't agree with the Pope actions as far as some of the doctrines so they separated themselves and they call themselves the old catholics or more like the authentic catholics as opposed to the new doctrines that the church was promulgating so it it arose basically from a revolt from rome initially so people had different ideas than the roman catholic church although they wanted to preserve the teachings and the culture of the church. 
They just didn't want to be under Rome. So when the Pope made big changes, folks said, we want to keep things the same if we can. Vatican I, Vatican II, and this fed the independent Catholic movement. It fed, um, well, the, let's see, Vatican II, which was the modernization in the 60s of the Roman Catholic Church, that was rejected by people like um, Archbishop Lefebvre, who is arch-conservative and rejects the lineage of popes um, during and since Vatican II because he doesn't believe that they're valid popes. They're not promulgating the traditional Catholic teachings. So that Vatican II fed the very conservative independent Catholic movement. So what you're saying, Siobhan, is before that we were having, it was a more liberal leaning independent Catholic church. And then after Vatican II, we saw this new community of conservatives entering the mix. Does that sound right? John, what what do you have to add to that? Oh, I think there's always been conservative independent Catholics, but it certainly got a, a good kick in the butt when uh, Vatican II happened. Um, <laughs> and this Vatican... is about the priest. I mean, again, for our listeners, it's about the priest, you know, facing the congregation or facing away from the congregation. This is about speaking right. Latin. I mean, it's very much about the ritual. Yep. Yep. And in and as for the first Vatican Council, the, what the, the what the majority of the old Catholic churches re- rejected. Um, was the Pope declaring himself infallible. Um, they said, hey, wait, that's not Catholicism. Um, and, and also making the assumption of Mary uh, and the enthronement of Mary dogma. Um, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a pious, uh, uh, pious mythology up until that point. And, um, you know, you could, you could accept it or reject it. But uh, at the First Vatican Council, it was actually made a doctrine that you you know, you really needed to uh, to believe, uh, and so the you know there were a lot of um, Roman Catholics who did not uh, did not want to go along with that, and so especially in Germanic countries, they um, they petitioned uh, the Archbishop of Utrecht uh, to send them bishops in the old Catholic movement, which had been just a a small movement within the Netherlands itself, and uh, uh, it, it spread you know. Um, throughout Europe. So, you, you know, even today you go to Germany or, or Switzerland and, um, uh, you know, you'll, you'll pass an, an, an old Catholic church. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, they're, they're not unusual. They're, they're kind of, they're kind of everywhere. Yeah. Many of the old cat, the people that founded the old Catholic church were theologians from the university of Tübingen, which was a major theological, seminary from which Catholics were trained. So Siobhan, I want to go back to something you said about the ritual, uh, the Eucharist, uh, I guess. Uh, that, that's what, for you, is that the sort of like connecting point for independent Catholics? This is what's being maintained? This is what doesn't want to be left behind when there's a break? You know, I was ordained um, in 2003, and I have really changed my attitudes in some ways since then. Ah. So currently, I do work as a priest under a bishop who is ordained in the apostolic succession. His name is Louis Kaiser. But it's a, a different understanding of the Eucharist and some of the other ceremonies. Uh, 
it's more focused on the pre-Christian Jesus, the Jewish Jesus. In Bishop Kaiser's church, there is no mandatory requirement that you accept any kind of doctrines. So, in fact, he does not accept uh, the Christian doctrines of the incarnation and substitutionary atonement and so forth. He's focused on the pre-Christian Jesus before Paul and some of the other disciples changed the teachings of Jesus in his estimation. So that's where I'm working now. And so I think for me that the main attraction initially was the fact that there is a ceremony that is working on metaphysical levels to change the practitioners. And that's ceremonial magic, right? So it has a power. And to you, understanding that power goes back to pre-Paul. <laughs> we have to get before Paul to truly understand right. what that power is about. Yes, and also um, Bishop Kaiser does, and I agree with him, does emphasize the apostolic succession, but it's more a connection to sort of the living Jesus. It's not that you're legitimized by Rome. It's actually a charism that is transmitted through the apostolic succession. That makes sense. And that's why they say, once a priest, always a priest. Even if a priest is defrocked, you cannot take that charism away. Interesting. John, any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah. You know, um, what attracts me to the tradition um, was, was definitely the ritual, um, but also kind of the deep mysticism at the, the heart of the, of the, the Catholic tradition. Um, I mean, you know, this is uh, something that I, I think um, a lot of people in the pews, you know, it never trickles down to, but, you know, there's an incredibly rich uh, tradition of mysticism um, in the Catholic tradition. And, um, and so, you know, having access to that um, and being able to really explore that and, well, you know, I, I kind of see the Christian tradition as my toy box and I get to play with it any way that I want because, you know, this is my home. Um, so <laughs> I get to play. Um, and uh, one of the things that is attractive about independent Catholicism is that it is much more egalitarian. It's much more close to the ground. Um, in independent Catholic movements, you know, the priest isn't, you know, you know, some rarefied person who is, uh, you know, uh, on the altar of far away. Um, pretty much everybody has access to priesthood in independent Catholic traditions. And um, so uh, John Plummer writes a, a, a lot about this in his book, The Many Paths of the Independent Sacramental Movement, where he talks about, you know, m there a lot of independent um, Catholic communities, everybody in it is a priest. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it is, uh, so, you know, the, the, the orders like uh, deacon and priest and bishop, they, they kind of become like initiations. 
Uh, and so it's, uh, there are markers of spiritual progress and, and spiritual work. Um, and of course, part of uh, a healthy and responsible and mature spirituality is service. Um, and so, you know, when you are a, uh, when you, when you are a priest, you, you go out and serve people. Um, in whatever way that you're called to do that. Um, so it's uh, independent Catholicism makes the riches of the Catholic tradition much more available, um, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're male or female, uh, whether you're rich or poor, um, uh, independent Catholics kind of come in, come in all stripes. Um, and it is much more available put it that way. And, and, and the, you know, there's a much greater ownership of the tradition. So the priesthood as an initiation, so it's a very different approach from the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, Siobhan, you would not be eligible, right? John, I think you would not be eligible to be a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm married and divorced. Oh my goodness. And, and, bi- and openly bisexual. So <laughs> how does that change the, the way independent Catholics function? Um, well, function is a relative word. Um, independent Catholicism is um, a, a very chaotic movement. Um, I like to say all we do is multiply and divide. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, just when a, a small independent Catholic denomination gets rolling, somebody gets pissed off at somebody else and there's a schism. And, you know, so the movement is really schisms of schisms of schisms of schisms. (laughs) Independence sort of taken to the nth degree. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, the downside of that is that, you know, is that there's no accountability. Um, The upside of that is that there's a lot of freedom. I see. I see. Uh, tell me a little bit about universalism in the independent Catholic tradition. Is it literally that everyone, I mean, it's if there's schisms, then it seems to me like in a given congregation or group, there are some rules uh, that you can uh, step beyond and, and then the, the universalism begins to break down. But uh, uh, tell me a little bit about that. What, what are the rules? <laughs> How do we follow the rules? There are no rules, ultimately. I mean, each church is autocephalous, which means it's self-headed. It's not, for the most part, it's not uh, under a diocese like the Roman Catholic Church. There's not a strict hierarchy. There are some dioceses in independent Catholicism and churches report to them. But like John said, if you disagree with your bishop, you can leave and found, found another church, right? So... It's hard to talk about any kind of uniform um, theology across independent Catholicism. Would you agree, John? I would, but there there is a very strong tradition of universalism in independent Catholicism. I think one of the greatest examples of that is the Polish National Catholic Church, um, which is probably the largest uh, independent uh, Catholic group. It was in communion with the old Catholics in um, Holland, but recently broke away when Holland started to ordain women. Um, 
and they they didn't agree with that. But all the way back in the 1800s, um, oh, and and by the way, the Polish National Catholic Church has <clears throat> you know like a, a, a hundred parishes. I mean, it's it's a sizable church, um, uh, in you know mostly in places that have a large Polish community, and and many of the liturgies are still in Polish, um, but. Um, uh, back in the in the 19th century, they um, uh, the Polish National Catholic Church declared itself universalist in theology, which means nobody's going to hell. <laughs> nobody's going to hell. Nobody is going to hell. <laughs> I want a T-shirt that says that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little. You know, it's reassuring. It, it, it it's lovely to hear a church say it. Um, yeah, it is. But but I would say that most progressive uh, independent Catholics would agree with that. Let me ask something that just occurs to me as you as you're talking. Is it modeling Jesus's life to split off and start your own thing? Ooh, what a good question. <laughs> uh, 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 no, you know, um, speaking speaking as a Christian, um, Christians uh, really suck at following Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, no bones about it. You know, Jesus only gave us one commandment, and that's love each other, and we do that very very badly. Mm. Which isn't to say that, you know, we, we, we don't try, um, uh, but I, I think some people try harder than others. So should we toggle into the occultism? Oh, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So the French Gnostics are on here. Now, I know nothing about the French Gnostics. John uh, sent me a list of, of connections that uh, I guess historically, uh, independent Catholics have had, I mean, I guess already we've, we've got to qualify. And, and I think John and, and Siobhan, you've done a good job of this, that when we talk about independent Catholics, we are splitting up people into various different, we can't really talk about a unified independent Catholic ideology. So I guess this would be one school of independent Catholicism that interfaces with French Gnosticism. What is that all about? Well, French Gnosticism, uh, had a couple different lineages, and one of them, the, one of the most important, is was founded by Jules Douanel in the late 1800s. He was given a vision, and he was told to start a Gnostic church. And this really is interesting to me because Paul also had a vision. You know, the, the apostle Paul never met Jesus in person. He had a vision, and that's what inspired him to do the work he did. So this is a different kind. So this church has no apostolic succession, at least in the beginning. Later, people are ordained by various bishops and it comes out with the apostolic succession lineage. But it it's really mirrors the Catholic church in the Middle Ages that wow. was <laughs> it's a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was basically told to reestablish the Catholic Church. And wow. so that is what he did. And so there were of course women and men that were ordained to priests and to bishops. The female bishops were called Sophias. And if you know something about the Catholic Church, there was egalitarianism within the organization. Uh, women held the same offices as men. And it was very ascetic for the priests or the clergy, while the lay people 
were not held to such a high standard. But they believe that there was another God, the true God, and that the purpose for of humans was really to end their temporal existence, like not reincarnate again or not come back to this world that is created by the demiurge or the half maker. Well, the demiurge is responsible for physical existence, right? Yeah, but it's not, it's an opposition to the true God. It's not seen as a positive force. And in French Gnosticism, the true God was the true God viewed as purely spiritual? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't want to, like, they didn't really want to propagate because at least among the clergy and the very devout Cathars, that was considered bringing someone into this evil world. That was a horrible thing to do. Right. (laughs) I see. Um, Anyway, so the French Gnostic church in the 1800s and early 1900s was modeled on the Cathar church. And then that became its sort of own independent Catholic movement in France. Yes. And then it, you know, it's, it transferred to the United States eventually through the apostolic succession. And one of the priests or bishops, actually, that is still alive and is a big force in independent Catholicism is Bishop Stefan Hurler in Los Angeles. And he founded the Church of Gnosis, which has been going on for decades in L.A., and there's also Rosamond Miller um, yeah. in the in the Bay Area. Uh, uh, she uh, uh, is the the bishop of the the Gnostic Sanctuary, the Ecclesia Gnosticum Nestorium. Um, and in fact, she was uh, the the primary consecrator at my consecration as a bishop. Um, and um, she has quite quite a lively movement. Uh, uh, her her Gnostic Church there in the Bay Area. It's uh, it, it's 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 very inspiring. It's worth looking up. So the Gnostic branch of the independent Catholics, largely inspired by the French, and I'm sort of like picturing this tree of independent Catholics, and there's some very tiny branches and these little sprouts, and then there are these larger branches, right? I mean, would we would we characterize this as a larger branch of independent Catholicism? Hmm. Well, you know, it, it's 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 a unique branch, um, but I don't think it's larger in numbers okay. uh, than than some other branches. It certainly has quite a longevity, though. It's uh, over a century, right? Well, it, it certainly does. It certainly does. One, one thing I would I would add to Siobhan's story is that you know um, the American Gnostics uh, tend to interpret their Gnosticism via uh, Carl Jung, so it's a uh-huh. <laughs> a, a very kind of uh, they've they've basically ditched a lot of the anti-cosmic um, theology from you know historical Gnosticism and have re- very much reinterpreted it along Jungian lines. Right, the Cathars certainly weren't doing any psychoanalysis in the 13th century. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I would mention the Cathars are what I would call you know, dualistic Gnostics. Not all Gnostics were dualistic, even in the first and second century. So we have non-dualistic Gnostics as well. Um, But that's not the group that the church fathers emphasize when they radically denounce Gnosticism. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say when they complain, but you're right, radically denounces. (laughs) Right. So um, 
Bishop Tau Malachi of the Church of Sophia is a non-dualistic Gnostic. And I tend to follow in that in those teachings as well. Well, just briefly, Siobhan, what, what does that look like, a non-dualistic Gnosticism? So there would be a single God that has different impulses, or, or what is that like? Well, it's more focused on, yeah, you could say a single God, but you know, the definitions of God, what does that mean? What does God mean? Um, That's another whole (laughs) whole question, you know, as a, as a Jew, um, we don't really, Judaism at core is really non-dualistic tradition when you get into the Hasidic and Kabbalistic teachings. So that works for me because that's how I see the world anyway. But non-dualistic Gnosticism would be there is no war against spirit and materialism. There is no there is no problem with what we call materialistic and what we call spiritual. There is nothing you don't have to denounce or become an ascetic to progress in the tradition. Everybody's on the same team. Yeah, it's more, you know, along the lines of it's it's much more mystical and it's has connections to some of the eastern traditions and zen and so forth. It was making me think of theosophy as you were speaking, just the notion that spirit and matter are on this evolutionary path that unfolds regardless of what we do. Mm, yeah, I'm not I don't know if that's core to non-dualistic Gnosticism. Again, that's that's not really a theological term. It's just kind of a broader idea mm-hmm. about, and, and I do think most people see Gnosticism as very dualistic, whereas that is not the entire tradition at all. That's just what has was emphasized by the church fathers. And we didn't know anything about Gnosticism firsthand from the writings of the Gnostics until fairly recently, because their teachings were destroyed. You know, their churches were demolished. Or I don't know what you right. say, but, yeah. Just, you know, yeah, they, they were, didn't really um, have buildings, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But they were um, denounced by the, what we would call the proto-Orthodox church, which became the, orth, you know, which became the main church and then splintered off into the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition in the 11th century. The Gnostics, I think the primary doctrine that's very different between Gnostics and traditional Christians is that you do not need an intermediary to contact God. And that is very threatening to a church establishment that is set up having priests as the intermediary between the adherents and God. It takes away the church's power because you don't need anyone but yourself to, to connect with God. Interesting. You know, as you've been speaking, I, I'm also, I, as you've both been speaking throughout, I keep thinking of the Rosicrucians as well and the way they interpreted Jesus as metaphor and the way I read the Rosicrucians is trying to make peace between the material and the spiritual and bring them together and understand them as one. 
but they're not on your list, John. <laughs> I don't see any Rosicrucian independent Catholics. That's because Rosicrucians were Lutherans. Oh, that's true. Uh, so I guess they <laughs> you can't make friends? <laughs> Come on. Can't get everybody Lutheran. together? Shivanda's Jewish <laughs> by birth. Lutherans are considered a sacramental tradition. Yeah, well, yes, the, the, certainly, but 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 not Catholic. So not um, Catholic, no, not right. Catholic. But they follow right. the same church calendar and so, so forth. That strong Protestant strain. I, I mean, uh, you know, if you're thinking about the modern 20th century Rosicrucians, um, Spencer Lewis, you know, he he would actually go back to Judaism and Solomon and say that that's where Rosicrucianism began. So, but I, I see your point, John, that you know, if we're looking at uh, the actual historical Rosicrucians, not the mythological Rosicrucians, <laughs> right? They right. are distinctly Protestant <laughs> in origin. So, all right, fine. Uh, you're, you're both so very uh, open. There's all these people coming into the tent. Uh, why can't we invite the Lutherans? <laughs> <laughs> How about the Theosophists? So let's let's keep going on our uh, yeah. our occult journey. The Theosophists. So we're talking oh, post Blavatsky sure. Theosophists, right? We I, I got to remind everyone as a Blavatsky scholar that Blavatsky was not a big fan of Christianity um, in its literal uh, doctrine or literal interpretation of Christianity and. Uh, she spent a lot of her career fighting uh, missionaries, particularly in India and Ceylon and all around Southeast Asia. <laughs> but after she died, one of her acolytes, uh, Charles Ledbetter, was um, more interested, I guess, in uh, what could be done with Christianity. Sure. Yeah. So he was um, part of, uh, well, you know, the 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 old Catholics in Holland uh, started a mission in England um, which the Anglicans did not enjoy at all because they figured we already have a Reformed Catholicism here. Why do we need you? Um, and 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 indeed, um, uh, the the old Catholic mission didn't really go anywhere. Um, there was just a handful of people attracted to it, and again, all of them became priests, but all of them were also Theosophists, which the uh, which the bishop didn't understand um, and um, kind of turned a blind eye to until he he until he he no longer could and he finally realized what theosophy really meant and of course he declared them all heretics um, which left him without a church um, but um, he had already consecrated uh, one of the um, uh, one of the church members as a bishop and so uh, the theosophists having having a bishop, among in their midst, uh, just carried on, um, and uh, one of the 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 leading figures in this particular story is uh, James Wedgwood, who uh, who's the the heir of the Wedgwood um, China uh, fortune uh, in England at the time, and this is uh, you know this is this is this is uh, early early 20th century. And a relative um, of Darwin's, a dis, not not direct relative of Darwin's, but they're all in the Wedgwood family, right? Darwin married into it. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really tasty. Thank yeah, you it's that. the Darwin-Wedgwood family. <laughs> that's, Fun fact. That's great. <laughs> that's great. Uh, so so anyway, as a theosophist, uh, uh, Wedgwood meets up with Led, Ledbetter, and Ledbetter used to be an Anglican priest uh, until he left it for theosophy. Um and Ledbetter tells the story of sitting out on a hillside and watching uh, a, a small church as mass is going on. And, you know, he's, he's clairvoyant. And so he sees all of these energies gathering around the church and, and, um, uh, and you, know, you know, just kind of 
humming and forming these uh, these astral shapes and so forth. And he's going, whoa, there's really something something powerful and important going on here. And so when he meets up with Wedgwood, um, they hatch the idea of um, creating a worshiping arm of the Theosophical Society. Um, uh, and they call it the Liberal Catholic Church. And they do this series of clairvoyant um, experiments in order to find out exactly what's happening during the Mass, uh, you know, step by step by step. Um, and they do a revision of the liturgy um, and, you know, uh, uh, ex- doing these experiments, seeing which words uh, have the most effect. And so they keep some of the words from the Roman rite uh, and they borrow some from other places and they write some of their own. Um, and they can they basically, you know, construct their equivalent of the Book of Common Prayer uh, that, you know, that has all of the rites and ceremonies of the church in one place, um, but all with theosophical theology. So they've done away with anything about hell or sin or judgment or anything and uh, and, and very oriented towards uh, uh, the uh, spiritual ascent um, and um, and worship of the master Jesus. Yeah, so especially after Blavatsky, Jesus came to be regarded as one of this set of ascended masters who were helping to lead humanity to their next evolution. Exactly, exactly. And um, I'll I'll read you just a bit of what um, Ledbetter says in his book, The Science of the Sacraments, which is like 600 pages of uh, exactly what's happening in the Mass. It's way more than you want to know, and you can't put it down. It's amazing. That's theosophy in a nutshell. (laughs) Right, right. So in that tradition, um, uh, Ledbetter says, um, The force manifested at the Eucharist comes down from the deity himself, as if it descends through the various grades of matter, it radiates out on all levels so it reaches them, and not only on the lowest. So while the physical radiation is acting upon the dense and etheric physical matter, the astral radiation is affecting the astral bodies of the congregation and also of the astral visitors. And at the same time, the mental radiation is influencing the mental bodies of the congregation of the dead and of those angels who do not manifest on the mental plane. It's like that all the way through. (laughs) I I just wanted to mention the church that I was ordained into was a church based on the science of the sacraments, which is the book that John is reading from, and the entire kind of theosophical Ledbetter Wedgwood theology, which is why traditional Christianity was basically absent from <laughs> my priestly vows. <laughs> How about that? Even the altar stone had to be made of very particular substances. And when I was ordained, I was given an altar stone that was exactly corresponding to Ledbetter's idea, you know, of the metaphysical properties of the, the altar piece, the altar stone. Yeah. So what's kind of interesting about the liberal Catholics is that they are <clears throat> extremely liberal when it comes to 
philosophy or theology. You can basically believe whatever you want, but they are outrageously conservative when it comes to ritual. <laughs> Everything has to be done exactly so. Uh, and, um, uh, and there are just voluminous instructions um, on, on, on every bit of church furniture, um, uh, you know, every accoutrement, every, uh, uh, you know, every vestment and so forth. I mean, it, what colors they are, what they're made of, uh, exact placement upon the altar and so forth. And that gets back to my initial question, why Catholicism? It, it, I mean, it, the Protestants in large part were reacting against the sensuality, right, of Catholicism, the ritual and the windows and the stuff, you know, the all of these things uh, that go into the sensual experience of worship. Whereas, you know, it, it, Protestants in their most extreme form are, are the Quakers just sitting still quietly and waiting for someone to have a thought. <laughs> right. <laughs> in an empty room, right? <laughs> no clergy, right? <laughs> right. And I think one of the, the complaints of the Protestants was this power and opulence that was invested in the Catholic clergy, you know, with the vestments and the treatment of them as like semi demigods, practically, and the money that went into supporting them. But Siobhan, would you say that we can... Um let's say, divorce the clergy from sort of the pomp and circumstance and glean occult value or energy from the ceremony. Do you know what I mean? Like if we yes. get rid of that authority, get rid of all the you know pomp of it and say, but still. No, I wouldn't get rid of the pomp of it. Yeah, but I think there's a degree to which they're taken way too seriously and that it is almost a mockery of, or it is a mockery of someone who follows Jesus. Becomes too much about the personality no. and not about the performance. It becomes, it's almost like they're royalty. Hmm. And they are treated like royalty in the Roman Catholic Church. And that is not something that I find that represents... Yeshua at all, or Jesus. I mean, you think of what the kind, the kind of life that he led, the itinerant and very poor life that he led, and then so many clergy, not just in Roman Catholic circles, but in liberal Catholic circles, love to dress up in these sort of medieval or Byzantine costumes. And I find it actually ludicrous. I don't, how, do you, how do you feel, John? <laughs> I love my vestments. <laughs> but you're not you're not dressed up as a, a, a Byzantine king, are you? <laughs> no, no. I would I would preside in a chasuble, though, and you know. Yeah, my... that, no, that's fine. But okay, yeah. You know what I mean, like. <laughs> John, what is a chasuble for those who don't know? <laughs> uh, that's the uh, <clears throat> that that's the the. Uh, the the covering uh, that the priest is wearing during mass it's the oh I see the the, the kind of triangular thing that's uh, that's over his head basically mm -hmm. it seems to me that the independent Catholic is in part trying to solve this riddle then of how do we get away from the power trip of it all while not losing the beauty and sensuousness of the rites of the ritual of the vestments 
Oh, absolutely. And of course, um, uh, you can't get away from the power trips because Catholicism and, and independent Catholicism uh, likes to set itself up as being um, uh, hierarchical. And so, you know, you have um, uh, a, a bishop with maybe three or four priests, and um, he can be a, a holy terror because he has power over these people. Um, and and it's it's it, it can be devastating. I, I've heard so many horror stories uh, of of people who've gotten really really wounded um, from what I call asshole bishops. Um, so much so that when um, I uh, was looking for a community to join, I um, gathered a lot of folks around us and I, I, I went and talked to a bishop and I said, look, we have this idea. We want to create an independent Catholic order that is completely egalitarian, um, where everybody has equal vote, including the bishop. So uh, the bishop would basically have no power other than to hold the succession and will make all decisions by consensus. Will you come and lay down your power and be with us? And, um, uh, and she said, yes. Hmm. Uh, and so we started the Order of Holy Wisdom. We were a, um, uh, an independent Catholic group that worshiped Jesus in his pre-incarnate state as uh, uh, Lady Wisdom. Um, and uh, it was probably the, the healthiest independent Catholic community I've ever been a part of because we really held tenaciously to the consensus model. That's interesting. I mean, I think of Anton LaVey, who, you know, the Church of Satan, he said, we won't have any hierarchy, and what does he do? I mean, it's almost human nature. Next thing you know, there's all these little <laughs> hierarchies growing up within his organization. It's tough. It's it's a tough impulse. I think it's an impulse that we have as human beings to create these hierarchies and try to climb up them. Totally, totally. Well, from an outside perspective, I think that's what makes independent cat. Catholics so kind of beautiful because if you do have that hierarchical kind of system and you're that's not something that you're necessarily you know jiving with as um John you were saying that's you know you get these schisms into schisms you can break away from that and you can kind of go forth and go about your own way you totally can i i'm i wouldn't say that a lot of people um you know leave the hierarchical part of it behind, unfortunately. Um, I, I, I think it really, it really can work. Um, but most people opt for the hierarchy. That impulse persists. I mean, Jenna, I yeah. even find in my, on the podcast, it's, I think that my folks like to have someone running things. <laughs> I don't lord it over them, but it certainly makes their lives easier. <laughs> Luke, am I right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you you provide a unique sense of direction, and I think a lot of people require that. Yeah, but then that, I mean, I guess the toxic impulse is to turn that into the, uh, the power trip. Is it about power? Is it about direction? That's more of a reflection of the individual than the organization they're a part of. If they turn it into a power trip and use it to take control, then they shouldn't be the one giving direction in the first place. Are we talking at all about independent Catholics here, John and, and Shabbat? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to mention that I was 
aware of and involved to an extent with independent Catholicism for years before I actually took ordination. I had already had my degree from Harvard and so forth. I waited till I found a bishop that I really respected, and it turned out to be a woman. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know um, if that was the deciding factor that she was female, but there's, you know, no supervision of these bishops because they're self-headed churches, right? So there is no Holy See over them. There is no, um, no one holding them accountable at all. And I think that has led to a lot of problems within independent Catholicism and a lot of unhealthy individuals holding ordinations and and the episcopate in ways that I have found distasteful. So, Siobhan, that makes me ask a question I probably should have asked long ago. Uh, how did you end up in an independent Catholic church? So you, you went to Harvard Divinity beforehand. So you, you've always, I guess, been interested in religion. Yes, since I was 11. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> and and <laughs> so so to, to just give us a chart the path for us. So you're 11, you're interested in religion, and then you, you, you find your way to Harvard. Well, I first, before that, uh, I, so my mother's Jewish, which makes me Jewish under Jewish law. Mm -hmm. And my father is from a Christian family, although he didn't uh, participate in Christianity once he grew up. So my parents are very secular, but I did go to Jewish services and I went to mass probably once a week. And there was just something about mass that I, that really drew me. And I'm not even sure what it was, but I was fascinated by Catholicism from the time I was young. There are Catholics in my family, but I didn't really know them, so I can't attribute my interest to their influence at all. And then I got involved when I was 15 in ceremonial magic. I lived in LA, so (laughs) that helped. (laughs) Yeah, I was, you know, at LA and San Diego, where it was pretty readily available, even for someone that young. You know, I was working with an alchemist. I was involved in um, a ceremonial magic circle and so forth. And then I uh, I joined an, a Hindu ashram for 12 years. Wow. <laughs> and uh, was married and had a child who's a great kid now. She lives in Colorado near me. And when I left... I started college at the age of 30 and pursued religion as my academic focus, you know, from then on. And I came across, I think at first I was in, you know, I was still doing ceremonial magic when I was an undergraduate and sort of Wiccan covens and so forth, because I think the community, you know, I, it's not about power for me. I mean, I think real ceremonial magicians, about community, it's about touching the divine. And those things drew me to that tradition. And so I focused on Western esotericism as my academic specialty. Um, But then I found out about independent Catholicism. And I did at that time wanna serve as a clergy person. And so I think that's what really drew me to independent 
Catholicism at that point. And also, like I said, I was ordained into a very theosophically oriented church. And so that there were no doctrinal tests. I didn't have to confess any kind of belief in Jesus, which was good because I'm Jewish, you know? (laughs) I mean, I went through baptism, but I was like, okay, this is the mikvah, which is the ceremonial uh, bath that Jews take in certain certain times of the year. So I never became a Christian as it's usually defined. And that was very attractive to me. So throughout all of your spiritual journey, your Hindu ashram and and all this, you've always sort of maintained your fundamental Jewishness in relation to these other perspectives? Yes, yes. That's fascinating. And so now I'm working in a within a, a church where the focus is on Mar Yeshua, which is the name of Master Jesus, and looking at the original Aramaic teachings as far as we can reconstruct them. And so what Dr. Kaiser has been doing is taking the Greek um, apocryphal scriptures and as, as well as the canonical scriptures and translating them back into Arabic as as far as possible and getting back to the original teachings of Jesus, which were completely misunderstood by the Greeks when they trans, you know, translated the teachings into Greek because they're, you know, they're trying to translate from the Jewish tradition into a Greek tradition and they're, they're completely different. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're not getting the Kabbalistic elements or, that Jesus was transmitting in the parables and so forth. So I find his work really compelling. And I like the emphasis on the pre-Christian teachings because I don't believe Jesus came to found a new religion. I think that was primarily the push of Paul. I tend to agree. Um, I think Jesus would be quite surprised. He was a rabbi. There's a great book by um, called Rabbi Jesus by an Aramaic and Greek scholar. Oh, that's interesting. John, let me put the same question to you. How did you end up where you're at? Um, well, I was raised Southern Baptist, hardcore fundamentalist Southern Baptist, and uh, actually surrendered to preach when I was 16. So I was... I was uh, standing up on top of tabletops at the roller rink, um, telling people going they were going to hell when I was 16. Um, you sounded like a charming 16-year-old. <laughs> uh, I, it's, it's embarrassing. Um, but um, uh, I was uh, really, really actually pretty badly wounded by my fundamentalist experience. And so I kind of, uh, blew it all off. Um, and you know, when my friends got into, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I was, I was right there with them. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, we were on our way to Disneyland and while we were driving, I said, what, what is God? And uh, my friend had been raised by hippies and he says, well, you know, the universe is this giant cosmic dance and all, everything knows the steps, you know, the, the, the planets and the stars and the angels and the demons and the animals, they all know the steps. And the only 
people who don't know the steps are human beings and our religious traditions are our feeble attempts to get back into the step of the great cosmic dance. Wow. On the, on the way to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just hit me with the force of the re- of a revelation. And I like cried for two days, which is not what you want to do at Disneyland, but I was just so <laughs> overcome. And I became a universalist from that moment on. Mm. And um, so I went to California Baptist College because, uh, you know, grandma and grandpa will help you if you go to a Baptist college. Um, and um, that's when I discovered the uh, the Episcopal Church. And I started going to the Episcopal Church and I was utterly mesmerized by the ritual and the theology. Um, and it was different enough from the Baptist Church that I wasn't triggered by it. Hmm. Um, and I felt like I could actually approach a meaningful spirituality again. I did a lot of healing in the Episcopal Church. Uh, uh, I remember once my, my my priest, I was telling him I couldn't stand what Paul was saying. And he says, oh, ignore Paul. Just listen to Jesus. And I went, wow. <laughs> what? Just, just being given permission to ignore Paul and listen to Jesus. That was so transformative and so healing. And um, so I, uh, I I went and did my my PhD in world religions because I wanted to know how other people um, uh, understood and were in relationship with this great mystery. Um, and every time I found something in this other religion, I would come back to my own tradition and find it there too. Whether it was a teaching or a practice, you know, if I dug, I found it. Um, and uh, it was it was just it was kind of mind blowing actually. And again deeply healing. And I felt, uh, I felt called to become a priest. And, uh, so I, I went to the Episcopal seminary and I said, I, <laughs> um, I, I would like to enroll. And they said, well, okay, it'll cost you about $35,000 at that point, Ooh. which is cheap today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and I, I was, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was a poor Episcopalian. So, you know, which is, kind of an oxymoron. Um, and, um, you know, when I was a Baptist, if you go to Bap- if you go to seminary, they, you don't pay a dime because, uh, the Baptist pays the, you know, the, the church pays your, your, your ride. So I didn't know what to do. So I prayed, I said, okay, God, I believe you want me to be a priest, but, um, I've hit a brick wall here. What do I do? And about a week later, I saw an ad in Gnosis magazine for the church of Antioch. Um, which is uh, uh, which is uh, derived from kind of a, a breakaway from the liberal Catholic Church, and um, uh, and so I met a, a bishop who uh, recently left the Church of Antioch, um, and he kind of took me with him. It wasn't wasn't really on the up and up, nevertheless. Um, uh, that's how I got involved. And uh, so I, you know, he, uh, I'd already done enough studies. So he just did some mentoring for with me and, um, and uh, he ordained me and uh, I've been working ever since. A couple of years later, I came across a little congregational church in Berkeley that was worshiping in an Anglican fashion. Turns out it was a, a merger between a congregational uh, congregation and a, uh, and an Anglican congregation, uh, an Episcopal congregation, a breakaway Episcopal congregation. And um, they 
within weeks hired me as their associate, and I was the pastor there for 27 years. Wow. Yeah, and it was one of those only in Berkeley kind of places. You know, you it's uh, completely run by the congregation, um, so the clergy doesn't really have any power over the running of the church. The congregation runs the church, um, and yet we had the full Anglican ritual, uh, and uh, so it was kind of the best of both worlds, and I absolutely loved it. Well, I, I think we've done pretty well on the topic today. Is there anything either of you would like to add? I just wanted to say that the church or the, yeah, I guess it's the, the, the religious organization that I work within right now with Bishop Kaiser does have a full initiatic ceremonial magic order that is separate from the church, but that priests have to go through to become ordained. So that was waived for me because I had such a, a longstanding background in ceremonial magic. But that is another example of how occultism and liberal Catholicism have merged. And Siobhan, if folks wanted to look up that particular order, what, what, what would they Google? They would Google hometemple.org. Well, they just type it right in. <laughs> yeah. And Lewis Kaiser, K-E-I-Z-E-R, has books on Amazon and is a presence on YouTube as far as giving seminars on various topics. Fantastic. And he, you have your books. What what would you recommend if folks wanted to learn more? Um, I have a book on Amazon published by John Mabry called Priests, Gnostics, and magicians. And this goes into more detail about the early history of independent Catholicism. Fantastic. John, last thoughts? Uh, Yeah, something we didn't hit on that I think is important is that um, one thing you find within a lot of independent Catholic, uh, especially progressive independent Catholic bodies, is kind of a syncretism going on. So you have independent Catholics who are Catholic and Zen Buddhism. So there's a a strong Zen Buddhism uh, influence to their, uh, to their, 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 their Catholicism. Um, I've even, you know, come across Thelemic uh, uh, Catholic um, hybrids. (laughs) So uh, Crowley wept. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of all over the map there, but that's part of the, part of the freedom of the tradition. Fantastic. Yeah. And a book for the folks might read of yours. Um, uh, Sure. Um, Well, um, if you want to introduce somebody to the independent Catholic movement, there's a little book that I wrote with John Plummer called who are the independent Catholics. Um, I think um, uh, if you want to get a flavor of what independent Catholic life is like, I have um, a trilogy uh, of urban fantasies called The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, which uh, is about an independent uh, order of uh, friars uh, who live in Berkeley and they're exorcists. It's very very (laughs) Buffy the Vampire Slayer (laughs) meets uh, Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City meets... uh, the uh, the name of the rose, you know. So um, 
uh, th that that would give people a good flavor of what uh, what independent Catholic life is like. Very cool. Dear confessors, my witches, my magicians, my occultists of all stripes, guess what? <laughs> These independent Catholics have been with you all along, and many of you had no idea, <laughs> including mm -hmm. me. I really appreciate uh, Siobhan Houston, John Mabry, that you have taken the time to share your path with us, to share your experience, and uh, uh, to share your knowledge. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. My name is Rob Thompson, uh, joined by Lou Kinneman, and that is it for our conversation on independent Catholicism. Uh, join us next time. We're uh, going to start getting into uh, some doppelgangers and fun stuff like that. We'll do some Charles Ledbetter, actually, this season. We're going to talk about the double, the occult double, here on Occult Confessions. <laughs>